Hear now God's word to us from Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And now a New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order, listen to my appeal, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit, giver of life, breathe into us that we may hear a word of truth this day. Draw us into communion, enable us to love. Conspire to make us one with you for the world you so deeply love. Amen. So one of the central questions of the spiritual life is simply this. Where is God? Where is God? It's one of the questions my spiritual director will ask me every month when we meet. And it's a question I will often ask you when I meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. Where is God in your life right now? The question prompts us to open eyes that we sometimes keep closed. It invites us to flex muscles we can otherwise let atrophy. The question, where is God, prompts us to employ what you might call our spiritual sensibility. It invites attentiveness to the presence and movement of God. I'm a pastor, and one reason I've long felt called to this work is not only do I love the scriptures and I love the people I get to work with, namely all of you, but I love the God questions. I'm endlessly fascinated with them. Where is God? How is the God we see in scripture, the God we know personally in Jesus Christ present in life, the church, the world today, and in turbulent times, the question can prove especially yeasty. So let's ask it today. Now, this Trinity Sunday, 2020, where is God? Where is God when a deadly virus keeps us separated from one another such that we are worshiping this morning remotely? Where is God when so many face isolation and family challenges and economic hardship as a result of the virus? Where is God when that virus has taken the lives of more than 400,000? Where is God? as our nation contends not only with the racism in our past, but how racism and white privilege are a part of systems and structures today. Where is God when climate change threatens our planet and the poorest who dwell upon it? Where is God when so many turn not to faith in tumultuous times, but away from faith, assuming there's nothing in our faith traditions to help in the issues people face, no true salvation and fullness of life there to be found as we people of faith contend that there is. 
Where is God today? Is God, for example, with those protesting and calling for change in the wake of the killing of George Floyd? Certainly that was a message a number of us clergy and church members hope to convey at the events last Sunday night and Tuesday night. I'll often wear a clergy collar and stole to such events. It makes me feel a little bit like a Catholic priest or maybe that I'm trying to dress up as one. Clothing always feels a little bit awkward. But then there are certain issues, causes, I believe are consistent with the best in my faith tradition. And so I want to communicate visually that a faith leader stands with certain struggles, those tied to what I read in scripture as God's vision of justice and of peace proclaimed through the biblical prophets and other texts of our holy scriptures. The rector at St. John's Episcopal Church in Georgetown Gina Gerbasi chose to spend last Monday, I presume, in her clergy garb in front of another St. John's Church, the one at Lafayette Square. She was there to provide what she called peaceful and prayerful support. She brought granola bars and cases of water for those demonstrating. That evening, she tells of being cleared from the area as a wall of police with riot shields, pepper balls, and smoke canisters entered the scene. She later learned they were cleared so the president could pose in front of the church holding a Bible. That photo made quite a statement itself as to where God is in these turbulent times, didn't it? Gina's presence, on the other hand, was saying God was with those protesting. So where is God? The events of this last week have prompted us to ask the question anew and different answers are posed so dare we make any kind of claim as to where God is. I know I am blind in a host of ways. Some I don't see because of my blindness. Sin clouds my vision. So how do I, how do we speak with any kind of competence as to where God is, especially in times of upheaval and political polarization? Some would say best to just stay silent on the question of God, of God's presence, of God's work. Fine, if you want to say you believe in this cause or that one, this leader or that one, but don't bring God into it. Don't carry symbols of the faith with you out in the world pretending God is somehow with endeavors you undertake. For God is not there, not here, not anywhere on earth, some argue. The atheist would make such an argument believing God does not exist. God is a fiction, a myth constructed by human beings. There's no real presence to look for on earth, says the atheist. But even Christians and Jews, true believers in the God who we read in Genesis created all things. Even Christians and Jews have cause for hesitation, if not downright silence, when it comes to speaking of God's location on earth. You see, the God revealed in the Hebrew scriptures is different from us. In the beginning, we read in today's passage from Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth, those are the first words we find in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a creator 
and there is creation. There is God, and there is all God has made. So with that being the first distinction of reality, how do you speak of the creator somehow in creation? Later in the Old Testament, we will read of the creator's dwelling place located in the heavens. Now, I take that not as a reference to the sky per se, but as a reference to a different reality, a distinct reality from what we know. We pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that God's reality might penetrate and transform our reality, but the two realms are distinct, earth and heaven, our home and God's home. Our reality is tainted with sin. God's reality is holy and just. So if you're going to talk about creation and the struggle creatures face, you're talking about something categorically different from the creator, right? Oh, but you say, what about theophanies? What about those times in scripture, God the creator shows up? What about the burning bush where God spoke to Moses? What about the thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai where God drew near to God's people and spoke to Moses? Does not the very God of the heavens come near to us here on earth on occasion? And the answer, of course, is yes. God clearly does. But those examples are exceptions that prove the rule. They are miraculous, unusual, and positively terrifying. For ordinarily, God is somewhere else. God may have given God's people commandments by which they are to live. God may send guides to them like a pillar of cloud and fire, but God in God's being is ordinarily, we understand, in that other place, the realm of heaven, right? And so unless we're speaking of the truly miraculous, Christians and Jews have cause to say God, the creator, God, our divine parent is not here, meaning not here on earth. Oh, but you say, what about Jesus Christ? What about the incarnation? Did not Christ shatter the wall between creator and creation, between God and humanity? Did not Christ, the God-made flesh, bring heaven and earth together? Did not his coming allow us finally to talk about the real presence of God walking on earth? And yes, that's precisely what our faith professes. We'll proclaim it in the Apostles' Creed this morning. You'll hear it sung today in the offertory. The song you'll hear is entitled, O Magnum Mysterium. Although I understand our music director and choir director might refer to it at times like, O Magnum Miserium, because of how hard it was to pull together. But it's a song that invites you to contemplate with awe that animals, creation, and a woman named Mary all were so blessed as to be visited by the Lord. It reminds us the very human race and all creation with it have been wondrously visited by the Lord. What a mysterious, sacred thing that is. The song, O Magnum Mysterium, reminds us God was really here in Jesus Christ. And yet... That same Jesus Christ, we will proclaim in the Apostles' Creed, ascended into heaven. 
We will declare that he ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So even though he was with us on earth, he now dwells in that realm distinct from earth, that place we call heaven. In fact, one of the reasons Protestants have long challenged the notion that the Lord's table, the bread and the cup become the physical body and blood of Christ is that we believe the physical body of Christ is not here. It is ascended. Christ, we contend, is not divided corporeally where part of him is in heaven and part of him is here on earth. No, the one who lived and walked on earth, the one who was born in a manger to the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and rose from the dead, he ascended. He's now with God, the divine parent in heaven. So were we to understand God only as creator, and as Christ, were we to understand God only as divine parent and divine son, we could say we have the memory of God here on earth. We have the beauty of what God has made, this theater of God's glory. We have God's rule over us, but we would have a tough time speaking of the real presence of God here now. But as Christians, we don't just believe in God the Creator and God the Divine Son. We believe that the real presence of God is also known in the Holy Spirit. That's why for Christians, the doctrine of the Trinity has long been so important to us. The Trinity allows us to talk of the real presence of God here and now. Today's passage from 2 Corinthians is one of only a handful of precious references we have in the Bible to the triune nature of the God we worship. The Apostle Paul is giving the Corinthian church a closing benediction, and he writes this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That is my single favorite benediction to give at the close of worship. Now, had Paul just referred to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God, with God, we believe, being a reference to the first person of the Trinity, that is, if we had just the Lord Jesus Christ and God, the divine parent, then we would have a God who simply dwells in the heavens. We could speak of Christ's grace extended to us from heaven. We could speak of the love of God extended to us from heaven, a love so great that God sent God's only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We could speak of the grace of Christ and the love of God, but were we to know God only as Christ and as our Father who art in heaven, how could we speak of the presence of God here and now? Ah, but Paul gives us, as his parting blessing to his Corinthian church, a reference to what we call the third person, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the gift Paul attributes to Christ is grace, to God, our divine parent, love, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, communion. Communion. That's the translation of a Greek word named koinonia, and it can mean intimate community or fellowship. 
And that's what we have in the Holy Spirit, intimate community with God and with others in the body of Christ. Of all the words used to describe the ritual, we will soon observe eating bread and drinking from a cup in memory of Christ. Among all the terms for it, like the Lord's table and Eucharist and the sacramental meal, the term I like best is communion communion. That best describes for me what we participate in as we eat bread and drink from a cup in memory of the Lord's sacrifice. We have communion with God and one another. And how do we have that communion? How do we know it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. As the famous reformer John Calvin himself wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, God himself is present in the Lord's Supper and in baptism by the very present power of the Spirit. So we can talk of God being with us as we take communion. We can talk of God being present with you in your home, with me and all of us, though we are in separate locations. We can talk of God being present as people come to faith in Jesus Christ, for we have the Holy Spirit, the real presence of God, a presence we caught glimpses of back in the beginning of it all. When the Spirit of God hovered, we read, over the waters. We can speak of God being present as families know reconciliation or as the sick experience healing as we pray each Sunday that they will. We can talk of God being present at nonviolent protests like those that will take place tomorrow. We can talk of God being present as people of color and others with them cry out for justice. We can talk of God being present with the dying. Even if a family member or a pastor or a priest cannot be with them due to health restrictions, we can talk of God's presence in your heart and my heart right now. With the Holy Spirit, we can talk of the real presence of God in us and out in the streets. Now, God is one, and so we would anticipate the Spirit's presence and movement as consistent with God, our divine parent, who gave us the Ten Commandments. We would anticipate the spirit to move in ways consistent with those commandments, commandments Jesus famously summed up in the call to love God and to love your neighbor. If you're going to talk of the presence and movement of the Holy Spirit, we would expect love of God and neighbor to be present there. God is one. And so we would anticipate the spirit's presence and movement as consistent with Christ and his ministry of healing the sick, feeding the hungry, liberating the oppressed, and proclaiming good news of salvation. If we're going to talk of the presence and movement of the Holy Spirit, we'd expect to see such things. We'd expect to see healing, sharing of resources, liberation, and proclamation of God's love in Christ. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we see such things, we see more than those things themselves. We see more than signs. We see more than just bread and wine. With the Holy Spirit, we can see God here, really here. We can talk, we dare to talk of a real presence involved in personal change and social transformation. May you know 
that presence today. May our world know that presence, and may we follow where that spirit leads. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.